Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Dalbavancin and aridavancin are long-acting lipoglycopeptides that are FDA-approved for the treatment of acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections using a single dose. The unique pharmacology and drug characteristics of these agents have led to expanded interest in off-label treatments of deep-seated endovascular and osteoarticular infections that have historically required daily parental antibiotics for extended durations. Today's podcast speaker, Dr. Andy Jadis, will highlight the differences between dalbavancin and aridavancin and review literature describing the efficacy, safety, and cost considerations of off-label lipoglycopeptide use. Before diving into today's presentation, I'd invite everyone to consider how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted our and our patients' lives over the past few years. As we socially distanced and spent more time at home, our healthcare model also adapted to provide more uh, healthcare into the home. The US Department of Human Health and Services reported that there was a 63-fold increase in telehealth utilization for patients receiving Medicare. This shift to care at home is likely to only continue uh, beyond the pandemic as key stakeholders, such as the Center for Medicare and Medicaid and other uh, key payers explore this as an option to further decrease our traditional costs, such as hospitalization or uh, long-term care facilities as a revenue to reduce those costs. Leading into this, I'll start with a patient presentation that we'll be revisiting throughout the presentation. Patient RS is currently receiving inpatient treatment for MRSA infective endocarditis. After five days of intravenous antibiotics, he has, remain, he has remained hemodynamically stable, afebrile, and repeat blood cultures are negative for the last 48 hours. Past medical history is significant for alcohol use disorder, diabetes, and hepatitis C. And for social history, he's actively using IV heroin and methamphetamine and currently experiencing housing instability. For objectives for today's presentation, I'll be reviewing the pharmacology and drug characteristics of Delvanson and Ritavanson, Describing current literature, assessing the safety and efficacy for its FDA-approved and off-label indications for these agents, and lastly, discussing the pharmacoeconomic implications of these agents. To start off, a quick comparison of our two lycopeptides and some of their pharmacology. Both agents are FDA-approved for acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections, which include things such as cellulitis, erysipelas, surgical wounds, or deeper abscess infections. Both these were approved in 2014 and are available as single-dose options. Alternatively, Delvanson does have a uh, two-dose option one week apart. For administration, both have 30-minute infusion times, although noting that Aridavancin does come in a different formulation that does have that three-hour time. So that was the original formulation before they created a, a different formulation with that shorter time. For dose adjustments, Delvanson does require uh, a dose reduction once below a creatinine clearance of 30, Pause, there's no renal or hepatic dose adjustments for aridavancin. Additionally, if a patient is on hemodialysis, the dalbavancin uh, dose does not need to be reduced. Looking at half-life of these agents, I think this is something that's very unique about this class, as both these agents have very expanded half-lives. 
noting that Delvancin is uh, slightly longer at that 346 hours for side effects. Uh, commonly similar across these two is, as far as nausea, headache, and diarrhea. And noting the infusion-related reaction that can, conter, can uh, occur with these, I think of this as being similar to our, our vancomycin-related infusion reactions, given that they're structurally similar. Redevancin is unique in that it does interfere with the APTT and INR, so keeping that in mind for our patients on anti anticoagulation. So both these agents are utilized for specifically gram-positive organisms. So to orientate you to our figure here, this is a gram-positive organism, and we'll be reviewing some of the mechanism action of our agents. Starting off first with our agent we're more familiar with, our vancomycin. This interferes with the cell wall synthesis by binding dialanine dialanine, uh, preventing that cell wall form formation. Delvavancin works similarly uh, in the same manner to vancomycin to this degree. And additionally, ordredavancin has the same mechanism, but has an additional uh, mechanism that's important to note as far as its ability to disrupt membrane integrity. So working both on the cell wall and the plasma membrane. The net result for all these agents is bactericidal killing of our gram-positive organisms. Just a quick comparison then of our two different agents here. They're both available as a single dose regimen for acute bacterial skin, skin structure infections. There's no renal or hepatic dose adjustments for Redovancin. Both have long half-lives. And Delvancin does not interfere with the INR or APTT. And lastly, they both have that similar adverse effect profile. I think this is important to note as there could be some concern that these agents might have a delayed onset of adverse effects. Uh, which we'll get to in further with the stage three clinical trials for these. Looking at spectrum of activity uh, for these, starting with vancomycin, an agent we're familiar with, of course, we know has great gram-positive coverage uh, as our gold standard therapy for MRSA or methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus, and uh, noting that its limitations when we have vancomycin-resistant organisms. Uh, Delavancin has a very similar spectrum of activity, almost mirroring vancomycin, other than it does provide some level of coverage of vancomycin-resistant enterococcus with the VAN-B gene, noting that the aridavancin uh, has great coverage of VAN-A and VAN-B. I'd mentioned that VAN-A, for all intended purposes, is our most uh, clinically relevant phenotype that we see in roughly 85% of infections. To almost simplify this, then we could largely think of aridavancin really being the only reliable agent out of these three with vancomycin-resistant uh, enterococcus coverage. Noting, too, that neither of these, all three of these agents do not have any gram-negative activity or anaerobic activity. So looking at our comparison again, noting that Aridavancin has that expended VRE coverage. That brings me to my first assessment question for today. Feel free to join via polleverywhere.com at MayoRx or to text MayoRx to 22333. What advantage does Aridavancin offer in comparison to Delvancin? Is it A, shorter administration time, B, expanded coverage of VRE, C, less effect on anticoagulation monitoring, or D, lower rates of adverse effects? Uh, general consensus is that answer B is the correct option. I would agree with this. Answer A, shorter administration time, uh, is incorrect, as uh, traditionally, Aridavancin had that longer infusion at three hours, although it does have a similar 30 minutes, so matching that of Delvavancin. Answer C is incorrect, as it does have that effect on our anticoagulation monitoring and adverse effects rates are fairly similar between these agents. So that would make answer B correct, given that it has that expanded coverage of vancomycin-resistant organisms. So let's now transition into discussion of our, some of our clinical data regarding safety and efficacy or utilization, utilization of these agents. First, starting off with the FDA-approved indication for acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections. So first study we'll be talking about uh, was the DISCOVER 1 and 2 trial 
which was uh, for Delvance in its phase three clinical trials. These were double blind, double dummy, multi-center, non-priority trials. And key exclusion, inclusion criteria looked at only patients with that acute bacterial skin-to-skin -skin structure infections, requiring at least three days of IV antibiotics with signs of systemic infection. So our signs of this, uh, systemic infection being our traditional SIRS criteria with increased white counts, increased heart rate, elevations and fever, and so on. For comparison of these agents, uh, Delavancin was utilized in that original two-dose model, and this was compared to vancomycin IV for at least three days with uh, the option to then de-escalate to oral linazolid to complete a total of 10 to 14 days of therapy. For outcomes, they looked at early clinical response. This was defined as the absence of fever at 48 to 72 hours and the cessation of spread of redness arrhythmia that's site of infection. When looking at the comparison of these agents then for our primary efficacy endpoint, there was no difference in between these two achieving roughly 80% success rate, noting that this did meet then the non-inferiority margin uh, for the trial. For adverse effects, additionally, there was a slightly lower incidence of adverse effects for Delvavancin I would note that this was all uh, related adverse effects where true drug-related adverse effects were likely about only a third of the cases in this, noting that the thing that was more common was uh, paritis specifically with vancomycin, but both agents had uh, some rate of diarrhea and uh, nausea as well. So in summary, Belvansin was uh, described as being non-inferior and safe compared to vancomycin, plus or minus linazolid for that treatment of acute bacterial skin, skin structure infections. So then moving on to our uh, phase three clinical trials then for Redovancin, specifically for acute bacterial skin, skin structure infections. These were double-blind, multi-center, non-inferiority, randomized controlled trials. They included patients with a ABSSSI requiring seven days of IV antibiotics with signs and symptoms of systemic infections. So very similar to our other trials with Delvavancin. For intervention, they compared single-dose Redovancin to uh, vancomycin IV infusion for seven to 10 days. And the numbers here just correlate with the, the different numbers in the two different trials. Looking at outcomes of interest, they described a composite endpoint, which was defined as the absence of fever, cessation of spread, and no need for additional antibiotics at 72 hours after that initial dose. So looking at the outcomes for this trial, fairly similar rates of efficacy compared to our Discover 1 and 2. In this case, achieving roughly around that 80% in both the SOLO 1 and SOLO 2 trials. Again, this was not statistically different and met the non-inferiority margin. For adverse effects, no differences uh, when comparing these in this, these trials either, and noting that roughly only about a third of these cases were thought to be due to the drug and represented a very similar profile that we saw uh, from the Delvancin trials as far as nausea, diarrhea, and, and headache being common. I'd also note that there wasn't any reports of those extended duration or later on in the therapy uh, side effects, that would be a concern given these agents have such long half-lives. If we give a drug and someone has a, a side effect three days later, is that something we need to keep in mind? And largely, I think something that some of these trials support that uh, was, was safe and didn't occur. The key takeaway, or advance was non-inferior and safe compared to vancomycin for the treatment of acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections. That brings us to our discussion for off-label usage as we've defined that these are non-inferior agents for acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections. But I think that some additional interest has been grown in utilizing these for deep-seated infections, given that they have such long half-lives. So this starts with some of our pharmacokinetics that kind of explains why these agents could be great for these deep-seated infections. So starting with one study that looked at a single dose of Delvavancin, achieved adequate and high 
uh, serum concentrations, cortical bone concentrations, and synovial fluid concentrations at 12 hours. That was also seen continued throughout two weeks. This led to the extrapolation that a two-dose option of 1,500 milligrams dose on day one, and then additional dose a week later, would result in adequate bone concentrations above this, uh, the staphylococcal breakpoint for at least eight weeks of therapy. So equivalent to maybe roughly eight weeks coverage of a, a standard uh, therapy option. And then looking at aritavancin uh, for some of its pharmacokinetic data, also achieved adequate serum concentrations at that two-week mark with the single-dose option, noting that it is maybe less impressive at the number that we see here as far as its uh, amount that's retained in the blood, knowing that it does have that slightly shorter half-life compared to delvavancin. An additional PK modeling is uh, a different study showcased that a two-dose model with 1,200 milligrams on day one, an additional day dose on day eight, and provide that adequate concentration in the serum uh, above the staphylococcal breakpoint for at least four weeks. So this really brings us to uh, some of the rationale for why we think these agents might be effective for targeting deep-seated infections. So some of the few studies we'll be touching on will be osteoarticular infections and then endocarditis and bloodstream infections. Traditionally, these sites of infections have been thought to require extended periods of IV treatment, given that it can be difficult to achieve adequate concentrations at the site of infection with oral agents. Uh, so specifically for osteoarticular infections, this could be ranging from four to six weeks or extended therapies. And then also for endocarditis, extended intervals for that four to six period, uh, four to six week period. And noting that oral options do have some limitations as regard to a patient's requiring to be adherent to that. And then also ensuring that it also limits some of our options as far as what high bioavailable agents we can use. So digging a little bit further then into our osteoarticular infections with some data, starting with the, uh, a study by Rapo and colleagues in 2018. This was a randomized open-label comparator trial, including only patients with first episode osteomyelitis. I would note that 100% of these patients had undergone debridement before uh, randomization into the trial. And additionally, they excluded patients with prosthetic joint infections. 60% of patients had Staphylococcus aureus as the most common pathogen identified. And for intervention, they utilized that same dosage that I mentioned in the pharmacokinetic modeling, the two-dose uh, one-week-apart regimen, and compare that to standard of care that was continued for four to six weeks. Standard of care consisted of vancomycin, either followed by linazolid or levofloxacin, or transition to uh, ceftriaxone, depending on clinical decision. As far as outcomes of interest, the primary was clinical response at day 42, which was defined as the recovery without need for additional antibiotic therapy. So looking at the results of these trials, clinical care at day 42 was achieved at a high success rate in both arms at 97% in Delvavancin arm and 88% in standard of care. I note that this, this reflects that the rate of success that we see commonly in osteoarticular or osteomyelitis infections, ranging from the 80 to 90% rate uh, traditionally of what we see in standard of care. Looking at other outcomes of interest, hospitalization like the stay being something that'd be interesting to know about, there was a statistical reduction seen in patients that received Delvavancin by 15 days. And then also days of IV antibiotics, given that this agent only had to be given in that two-dose option, that also had a significant reduction in the days of IV therapy required. Adverse effect rates were quite low in both arms, uh, noting that 1.4% occurred in Delvavancin. And with this two-dose regimen, again, some of those concerns, if we're redosing or for this extended period of time, our patient's gonna have a higher rate of adverse effects. 
I think the study shows that uh, the efficacy and both safety for Devavancin for this indication. But to further build on this, some additional studies for this indication for Devavancin. The first one I'll mention is a study by Wunshin colleagues in 2018. This was a retrospective multi-center study completed in Vienna for population of interest. They looked at 32 patients that did have prosthetic joint infections, so building off the previous study that was mentioned that excluded these patients, and an additional 30 patients with osteomyelitis. Further, uh, most common pathogen that was identified, somewhat different in that coagulus negative staphylococcus was the most common organism identified. A lot of these patients did receive treatment outpatient, which is slightly different too, 49% receiving it in that uh, stage of care. For dosing, it was quite variable. The most common dose that was received was 1,000 milligrams on day one, with an additional dose of 500 milligrams weekly. Noting that the weekly or the median number of doses that this, these patients received was three. So beyond that initial, just two doses. Uh, in that case, one additional dose. As far as treatment response, uh, day 90, uh, this was defined as no clinical, laboratory, or microbiologic evidence of infection or need for additional therapy. And this was achieved in 93% of the patients with a prosthetic joint infection and 86% of the patients with osteomyelitis. The authors noted that two of the failures that were identified were in patients with prosthetic joint infections that did not undergo debridement or source control of that infection. So of course, important to keep that in mind when utilizing these agents that adequate source control would be ideal. And then adverse effects, there was only three out of the 101 patients in the total cohort that experienced an adverse effect with Dalvavancin. To build on this, an additional study more recently by Kane and colleagues in 2022. This was a retrospective uh, match cohort from two different uh, hospitals. And as far as the matching criterion, they matched based on Charleston comorbidity index, site of infection, and the causative pathogen to ensure that the arms would be similar. And then they compared Dalvavancin, which 42 patients received, to standard of care and the other 90 patients. And as far as defining standard of care in this case, majority of patients did receive vancomycin in combination with rifampin or then de-escalation of disafazolin, depending on their uh, pathogen identified. The median duration of therapy of antibox before utilizing delvancin was 10 days. This is important to note as patients were largely controlled, uh, their infection was largely controlled before switching to delvancin. For dosing, they used that same dose mentioned and the pharmacokinetic modeling at 1,500 milligrams on day one, that additional dose a week later. And then of course, standard of care was up to the ID team preference. For treatment success at one year, this was defined as uh, additional need for antibiotic therapy or additional sinus drainage or need for amputation at the site of infection. And this was a similar, occurred at a similar rate that wasn't different between these two arms, roughly around that 80% mark. For hospitalization length of stay, it was two days shorter in the Dalvancin group, showcasing that Dalvancin potentially has this ability then to spare some of our days happen to be spent in the hospital. And this study did have that lower, just to call out that lower success rate compared to that original randomized controlled trial that was mentioned for 96% headed success, success, where this was more closer to 80%. The authors rationalized that this was largely because the incidence of diabetic foot infections were quite high in this cohort at 45%, so largely a site that we consider polymicrobial, maybe not the most ideal usage of Dalvancin, but nonetheless still achieved somewhat similar to what our standard care response would be uh, for this agent. And then additionally, only 87% of patients underwent debridement. So again, another reason for why these uh, success rates might have been lower in this study. 
So transitioning from Bellavancin to some of our data specifically for Redavancin then for this indication. The first study I'll be reviewing is by Scoville and colleagues in 2020. This was a narrative review of 23 different microbiologically confirmed cases of osteomyelitis. Their most common pathogen identified was methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, representing 48% of the cohort. Dosing was very variable, given that this was a collection of case studies and really ranged from uh, two to three doses of Dalvansins, spaced out about a week to eight to 10. So that's important to note is not very clear, I guess, what to fully gain from that from considering dosing considerations. For clinical success, this was defined as improvement without need for additional antibiotic therapy, and this occurred at 87%. And then lastly, for osteoarticular infections, studied by Ben Heise and colleagues in 2020, this was a retrospective multicenter descriptive study of 34 different United, uh, state, or locations in the United States that included uh, 134 patients with osteomyelitis, so our biggest study to date for Rita Vanson. And the most common pathogen was MRSA and 72% of these patients. For dosing, they did utilize the standard approach, which was similar to that pharmacokinetic dosing mentioned earlier of 1,200 milligrams on day one, an additional dose of 800 milligrams weekly. Knowing that patients received four, uh, four weeks of treatment in 88% of the time, so this was uh, continued for that additional two weeks beyond that initial period. For clinical success, the authors described this as uh, assessment of efficacy at seven to 10 days after that last dose of uh, aridavancin. And this was based on if they had additional signs and symptoms of infection, that would then need additional antibiotic therapy. This was achieved at 88%. And they followed these patients up until six months, showing continuous success at 80% at that time period. So in summary, when thinking about our agents for osteoarticular infections, I think both Dalvansin and Aridavancin have uh, a good level of retrospect, largely retrospective evidence to currently support their usage and safety. So let's transition then into some of our studies for enterococcus, or sorry, enterocarditis and bloodstream infections. Starting first then with some studies for Dalvansin. The first being by Tobedic and Coggs in 2018. This is a retrospective cohort study of uh, different sites in Vienna, Australia. For their population, they looked at 27 patients with infectocarditis with a, a split of different uh, causes or sites of infection for endocarditis, whether it's prosthetic valve, native valve, or having intracardiac devices. And their dosing was quite different than some of the other studies that I mentioned earlier. So important to note, the most common regimen was uh, 1,500 milligrams dose on day one, and then additional 1,000 milligrams twice weekly. So definitely more aggressive than what we've been used to seeing in some other studies. Although a third did receive that, uh, the once weekly dosing regimen. As far as clinical response in this study, they define this as uh, additional need for antimicrobial therapy and absence of gram-positive bacteremia beyond that initial treatment period. This was achieved at 93%, and subsequently they followed up microbiological results at six months as well, which was uh, showed culture clearance of 89% at that time period, providing evidence uh, to support usage of advance for this indication. And then an additional study to mention uh, for Vihadelgo and Tenero and colleagues in 2019. This was a retrospective multicenter study of 14 different sites in Spain. This included more of a mixed population, including both bloodstream infections and infective endocarditis. And similarly, a different split and breakdown here for the different valve characteristics or in, in, uh, intracardiac devices. The dosing utilized in this study was very, uh, I would say, variable. And as far as the dosing, 50% received a single dose. That's kind of the most common regimen. Knowing that 
the median duration of antibiotics before starting was 10 days. So a good amount of patients did receive, had adequate clearance of their uh, bloodstream infection or endocarditis before uh, transitioning over to Dabovancin. For clinical care, this was defined as recurrence of infective endocarditis or bloodstream infections at one year, in which no cases or failure were reported. So both achieved 100% success rates. A third of patients that did have prostatic valves in this, surgery, or in this study did undergo surgery. So the authors kind of hypothesized that uh, Delavancin was able to spare surgery in two thirds of cases. I think that's something that we should caution uh, in thinking about its utility as an agent, as uh, if a patient is gonna need surgical management, uh, getting that source control, of course, would be our uh, gold standard to preventing future infections. Important to note that aridamancin is quite limited currently in the retrospective data describing its utilization for infective endocarditis and bloodstream infections. It largely comes from case reports or subsets of other off-label usage descriptions of aridamancin. So for all intended purposes, some of the retrospective studies is limited. Although thinking of its differences and similarities to delavancin, it's likely something that would work to a similar degree, just hasn't been reported. So in summary, just thinking of our agents for these off-label usages, Dalvanson again has more data to support its usage in endocarditis and bloodstream infections currently, but I think Aridavancin would be something that a treatment team could consider. For dosing for these off-label indications, uh, important to note that this is largely extrapolated from pharmacokinetic data, and our clinical experience is still quite limited given that we really only have these uh, descriptive uh, retrospective studies to a larger degree. But for our osteoarticular infections, based on the PK data and a few of those studies mentioned, a dosage of 1,500 milligrams uh, and then additional dose one week later uh, could be something that could be considered. For an uncomplicated bloodstream infection, this would be something that typically requires around 14 days or longer, two to four weeks of therapy would be around 1,500 milligrams single dose. And then when thinking of infective endocarditis, something that historically would require maybe four to six weeks of antibiotics, depending on the site and then also the pathogen. I think this dosing mirrors uh, osteoarticular infections. <clears throat> Always important to assess our patient's clinical response that they're having. And I think this is something where the individualization as far as the duration and need for additional doses it would be something that would be dependent on the treatment team in the individual case uh, as far as assessing their clinical response from that, those initial doses. For Redevancin, similar, uh, of course, disclaimer from a pharmacokinetic standpoint, I think that the dosing in this case can be much more individualized as the, uh, some of the larger studies have reported those weekly doses for osteoarticular infections. So that's noted here at that initial dose of 1,200 milligrams, followed by an additional dose of 800, and individualizing that duration based off clinical response and following their progress. For uncomplicated bloodstream infections, utilizing a single dose with that uh, potential additional extra dose, given that we saw in that one PK study that the, the duration of that serum concentration at two weeks might be a little bit less than what we see in Delavancin. And then lastly, for infective endocarditis, dosing that would mirror our osteoarticular infections. And again, assessing our clinical response for a patient would be important to fully determine what is going to be the most appropriate interval for our dosing. So now that we reviewed some of the uh, clinical efficacy and safety data for these off-label deep-seated infections. We'll transition into what populations might be ideal when we're thinking about patients that might have the most benefit from these agents. And I think vulnerable populations is really an area where this can have a niche. So defining what this is exactly, this can consist of patients with active substance use, 
uh, persons who inject drugs, housing instability, or patient with unmanaged psychiatric illness. And one of the reasons why these patients might benefit is that traditional outpatient antimicrobial therapy or oral therapies, this might be less ideal, given that uh, maintaining that compliance for that extended duration uh, might not actually lead to success for therapy. So moving into some of these studies to describe this, first starting with Delbavancin, a study by Bryson Kahn and colleagues in 2019 described the usage of Delbavancin in 32 patients uh, with PWID, or persons who inject drugs. And looking at the infectious syndromes, it was quite mixed, quite mixed with bloodstream infections being the most common at 34%. And looking at response as far as clinical, uh, clinical success, in this study that was refined as follow-up at one year to see if there was ongoing infection, which was achieved at a high rate of 87%. And describing healthcare that was avoided in these studies, I think of that as a way to kind of characterize what kind of benefit are we potentially getting from these agents. And in this case, PICK placement was avoided in 47% of the cohort. So PICK lines uh, can offer numerous issues as far as uh, catheter-related bloodstream infections, potential to have clots in those lines, and then additional line care uh, issues as well. Moving in into an additional study by Bork and colleagues in 2019, this described uh, the usage in 28 patients uh, with PWID as far as infections. Similarly, a mixed population here, but in this case, osteomyelitis being the, the major contributor for infectious syndrome. And as far as response, they defined this as clinical cure at 30 days with no additional need for antibiotics. And uh, this was only achieved in 71% of patients. Noting that this study did have a high rate of loss of follow-up of 25%, of which case they did count uh, some of these patients that weren't able to be tracked at day 30 as failures. Looking at healthcare that was avoided in this trial, uh, hospitalization length of stay was reduced by 14 days compared to a historical control data, which would consist of patients that then would need to stay in the hospital to receive their full treatment course. And then a last study here for Delvavancin by Vasquez and Dita and colleagues in 2020, described the usage in 27 patients uh, with 67% uh, PWID population with an additional 56% homelessness and 22% uh, with alcohol use disorder. Infectious syndromes of interest here, a uh, large majority of this cohort was bloodstream infections, but they break down here as well. And looking at what they define clinical, clinical success in this trial, they looked at need for additional antibiotics at day 90, uh, clinical success was achieved at 81%. And looking at hospitalization length of stay, this was reduced by seven days per patient, which accumulated to a total of 182 days of uh, reduction in hospitalization length of stay. So Del Vanson having pretty good data here to support that uh, uh, clinical efficacy, but then also that ability to potentially avoid uh, some healthcare related costs. And looking additionally at some uh, studies for Redavancin in these populations, the first being a study by Marcet and Cogs in 2019. This actually looked at lipoglycopeptides as a whole, so a mixture of Delavancin and Aridavancin. Aridavancin was used in a minority of these patients at 24%, and they did describe their usage in both PWID and non-PWID in the larger cohort that they looked at, but included 17 patients with PWID. For infections, they didn't necessarily exclude uh, they also looked at acute bacterial skin and skin structure infection, but then also those deeper sites of infection. Clinical success rate was defined as microbi microbiologic uh, evidence of clearance of infection or need for additional antibiotics for failure at day 60. 
And this was achieved at 77% in this uh, cohort. As far as healthcare avoided, I think this is an interesting hypothesis kind of generating thought here that uh, hospitalization was reduced, uh, not statistically more in patients that had that PWID history by 20 days compared to 11 days compared to that other cohort. So all these patients received Redovancin or Delvavancin, but even for this vulnerable population, this further reduction, this extra benefit we might see uh, by utilizing these agents compared to uh, other populations. And then the last study by Ascali and colleagues in 2020, this was completed at Hennepin County Medical Center, uh, looking at 23 patients uh, with PWID. 70% of these patients were homeless and an additional 70% had psychiatric illness. The most common infectious syndrome was 50% uh, bacterial skin, in, or sorry, bloodstream infections. And looking at their success rates as well, clinical care uh, was assessed at uh, as a sign, no further signs of infection at day 60. And then also if a patient did need to get additional hardware or other stuff removed as well. And healthcare was avoided in this case. Uh, they didn't necessarily report out as far as some of those uh, events, but something that would be interesting to know if that did lead to any reductions. But in summary, for use, usage of these agents, vulnerable populations, both Delavancin and Aridavancin have data to support their efficacy and ability to potentially avoid healthcare-related costs. That brings us back to our patient case. As a reminder, patient RS is currently receiving inpatient treatment for MRSA active endocarditis and has already received five days of IV antibiotics. Our update here is that uh, patient RS has received an additional five days of therapy, and the ID team has determined the patient will still need an additional 32 days to complete therapy. RS is unwilling to stay inpatient to complete therapy and would like to leave against medical advice. For our second assessment question then, which antibiotic plan would you select for patient RS? A, oral anazolid, 600 milligrams twice daily for six weeks of total treatment. B, aridavancin, 1,200 milligrams followed by 800 milligrams a week while outpatient. C, Dalvancin 1,500 milligrams, now followed by 1,500 milligrams in a week while outpatient, or D, outpatient antimicrobial therapy with vancomycin inflates six weeks of total treatment. So as these results come in, I think this is an interesting clinical uh, question that comes up commonly in practice as far as what would be the best treatment option for this patient. There isn't 100% one right answer, although I would agree with the majority that C is, would be the answer I would choose, given that Dalvancin currently has more data for the indication of infective endocarditis compared to aridavancin, although I do think aridavancin could be something to consider. Oral linazolid can offer some challenges, I think, for this patient as far as ensuring uh, adherence and then also some of the costs associated with it for that long-term six-week treatment course. But for someone that's motivated and willing to take that every day and have that necessary monitoring uh, outpatient, could be something to consider. And then OPAT as well could be something to consider, but sometimes can have those uh, logistical uh, difficulties uh, and this, for this patient. Then moving into cost considerations with these agents for the last segment of our presentation today. Thinking about drug acquisition costs, Dalavancin is a, quite an expensive agent. Uh, looking at the wholesale acquisition costs in 2022, looking at a dose of 1,500 milligrams, it's a little bit more than $5,000. And then also for uh, Redavancin, Looking at this dosage of 1,200 milligrams at the higher dose would be a little more than $3,000. Important to note that inpatient reimbursement is quite limited still. Uh, this is a concern that can arise as we utilize these for patients that are hospitalized. We might not always receive uh, the refund back, I guess, for utilization of them. So thinking of cost considerations for some of the different indications reviewed today, starting first with the FDA approved indication. 
for acute bacterial skin skin structure infections. Looking at the cost of lycopeptides, these are definitely a lot more than our standard of care therapies. So thinking of the cost of a high bioavailable agent that could be given PO, uh, definitely would be the much more affordable route to go. And thinking of IV therapies, of course, this could cost more than our PO uh, agents. We're looking at hospitalization length of stay. The intent of the pricing for lycopeptides is as a, a hospitalization kind of a avoidance, uh, so something that can be given in the emergency department to hopefully uh, prevent these patients from having to stay then in the hospital for four or five days. So if they're selected for the right patients, they have this ability to, to lead to this, but really if someone has a truly severe skin, skin structure infection, it might be wise to admit them anyways and just further manage them. So something that could maybe have this benefit compared to standard of care, although I think it is quite more difficult to fully flesh out when you're assessing a patient uh, who might have the most benefit in this case. And then of course for OPAT costs, the patient did require this from an IV standpoint. They might have a seven to 10 course day course for a skin structure infection. So thinking of that, uh, that added cost for some standard of care that would be avoided with lycopeptides. Clinical failure has been described as being similar between these agents. So not necessarily something that lycopeptides would add a benefit to at this time. And then thinking of our net costs of our agents, lycopeptides for this indication, I largely think of them as potentially being more costly for a majority of patients with skin structure infections. So it could be quite difficult to fully flush out who would have the most benefit. So largely something that uh, currently I wouldn't say is largely supported by, from a cost standpoint. But then what about our deep-seated infections? In this case, again, looking at our drug costs, lycopeptides are more expensive than our standard of care. Knowing that something like vancomycin that is our current gold standard for a lot of things can be more affordable, but something like uh, deptomycin can be quite expensive for utilizing that for an extended period of time. Looking at our hospitalization length of stay, especially in our vulnerable patients, we saw that reduction in a lot of these studies. So I really do think this is, could be a, a significant area where if an extra day in the hospital costs three, four, $5,000 more, uh, it'd be quite important then if we're able to reduce that uh, with these agents, that'd be added cost uh, benefit. And looking at OPAT, the intent of lycopeptides with that weekly dosing would be to spare that utilization for a patient to have to go in daily to get IV therapy. It says multiple effects when thinking of the direct indirect costs. So a patient doesn't have to necessarily spend that time that's gonna to take to get there every day. There's been studies that shown that OPAT can reduce quality of life. So if we're able to increase our patient's quality of life uh, through that with not having to go to OPAT every day, Additionally, the need to get a pick line place can have uh, consequences that I discussed earlier as far as subsequent infections or having the line clot and the necessary line care associated with that. So overall, lycopeptides can have a big role in reducing costs from this standpoint. And as far as monitoring, of course, we're going to need our patients to hopefully come back and get assessed again to make sure that we're achieving uh, success with their therapies. Our standard of care can have, of course, with vancomycin, thinking of the levels, need to monitor serum creatinine, some increased costs. Clinical failure from these studies, no difference has been shown. So there's not necessarily a more superior option from this standpoint. And lastly, net cost. I think this is really a role where uh, lycopeptides can help reduce costs uh, for our vulnerable po population specifically when looking at standard of care. I'll note quickly here that patient's assistant programs are something that's available for both these agents. The program criterion is quite similar. Uh, so mainly for uninsured patients, but Delbavancin does have criterion uh, for copay assistance for patients with commercial insurance. Whereas the difference with the Aritavancin program is that they have eligibility for both inpatient and outpatients. And both these uh, programs will provide vial replacement programs. So 
covered up to the full cost potentially in the vial uh, for our patients, which could be great. Now I've reviewed some of the clinical data as well as some of the cost. I think it's important to mention how can we further steward our usage of these agents? So looking at the ideal usage in summary, a patient that hasn't tolerated other standard of care therapies that has adverse effects to vancomycin, say they have a really bad AKI, uh, that could be something to consider. It's important that a patient has achieved clinical success with clearance of their bacteremia, and then also has had adequate source control before starting these agents. And I'd really at this time reserve them for vulnerable populations that were mentioned earlier. As far as inappropriate usage, patients that have a uh, polymicrobial site of infection, wouldn't it be ideal is that these are only targeted towards gram-positive organisms. A patient that's still hemodynamically unstable wouldn't be wise to use it in. And if a patient has compromised vasculature, such as a berm, if a patient, patient has had a severe allergy to something like vancomycin, there's a high chance of cross-reactivity, so something to avoid that in. And we don't have data currently for immunocompromised patients for their safety in this, so I'd avoid that at this time. And if a patient has planned future surgical management, again, sparing that usage, waiting until they've achieved that source control before starting. So that brings me back to our patient case for today. As an update, the IT team has been discussing that need for the additional 32 days of therapy and the logistics and costs of starting a lycopeptide for the usage as the patient is not a candidate for OPAP. In RS's case, what statement best describes the potential cost benefit of lycopeptides? Is it A, reduced rates of clinical failure, B, reduced drug cost, C, reduced uh, hospital length of stay, or D, reduced, quality, uh, reduced cost of quality adjusted life years? So as the answers come in here, uh, as noted from the cost consideration review, that answer C, I would agree with the majority here, is the correct answer for reduced hospitalization length of stay. The other outcomes of interest haven't necessarily been fully fleshed out in comparison with the other agents. So in summary, when thinking of the pros and cons of these agents, they have that long half-life, which leads to a favorable and frequent dosing of them. They can be administered via peripheral line, which is great to spare that need for a central line. They provide broad coverage of gram-positive organisms. And lastly, they have that potential to reduce hospitalization like the stay in our vulnerable patients. For limitations, inpatient reimbursement is still limited. The drug does come with high acquisition costs. There's an unknown effect on cross-resistance and resistance currently. And the high-quality randomized controlled trials are still quite limited in description for these deep-seated infections. So when thinking in summary, the key takeaways from the study, lycopeptides are long-acting agents that are approved for a single, with a single dose for acute bacterial skin, skin structure infections. Real-world uh, study, studies are available describing the efficacy for the treatment of deep-seated infections. And lastly, they may be agents that help reduce the cost associated with hospital length of stay, especially for our patients with socioeconomic barriers to conventional care. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.